so grateful for the opportunity to lead us once again in, in the worship of God through the study of his word. Growing up at some point, I'm sure we all learned about the myth of the genie in a lamp. It's been passed down to us through popular culture and everything from the 60s show I, I Dream of Genie to Disney's Aladdin and countless other shows and movies and books. And although it's taken on many forms, you all know the basic story. There are these magic lamps with genies inside who will grant you three wishes, three desires if you find the lamp. It's so ubiquitous in our culture. I'm sure some of you, when you were kids, like I did with my friends, you know, your friends would ask, you know, what, what would your three wishes be? And you'd all kind of take turns answering the question. It was just kind of a fun, cool game to play. But, but in a fun, innocent way, what was that game exposing? Well, it exposes the desires of our hearts, the priorities of our hearts, the, the things that, that are most readily top of mind that we want to get out of this life. And so when you played the game, what was pretty much everyone's answer? Well, of course, everybody's first answer was unlimited wishes, but usually we said, no, the whole point of the game is you have three wishes, what are they going to be? What's your answer? And pretty much everybody's answer were material, temporal things. Money, houses, cars, toys. I mean, weren't they? Mine were. I wonder if that would change now that we're adults. If we're really being honest, would we really answer that question much differently. And the reality is we don't really have to wonder if our wishes would change because the pursuits of our lives show what the desires of our hearts truly are. And for many of us, not, not all of us, but for many of us, the majority of our waking hours revolve around pursuing, seeking, desiring, ha having anxiety over the material, temporal things of life. And that's what Jesus is addressing in our text this morning, Matthew chapter 6. You can make your way there if you haven't already. Jesus is addressing our misplaced desires. And I think this is especially pertinent for us to think about this on the eve of a new year. We're, we're filled like Matt just prayed. We're filled with you know, anticipation and resolutions for the new year, changes we want to make, things we anxiously desire to see happen in the new year. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe we're just filled with all kind, kinds of anxiety, really just kind of certain about how terrible the coming year is going to be. We're dreading it. Well, whatever we think about 2018, if our desires are not aligned with Christ, we need a realignment. And so as we think about this new year and what we desire from it, let's focus on aligning our desires with Christ which leads us to gain more than we could ever gain from anything in this world. So let's read Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these." 
But if God so raised the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Those are probably pretty familiar verses to most of us. Those are kind of the go-to verses when it comes to talking about anxiety. That's usually the approach to this text. Anxiety over material things, anxiety over the basics of life. That's probably how your Bible is titled this section, something like, Do Not Be Anxious. And, and for good reason, Christ himself begins this section of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 25, by saying, Do not be anxious. And what is it he says not to be anxious about? The material pursuits of life, what you're going to eat, drink, wear, is not life more than that, he asks. He then uses examples from nature, such as birds and lilies, not freaking out, not stressing out about the provisions of life. Why then do we not trust the Father to provide for us, being made in His image and and worth much more than they? He says again in verses 31 and 32, Don't be anxious then. For food, drink, clothes, the Father will provide. Don't be anxious about the things of the world. Have faith in the Father. He will provide for you just as He does the sparrows who are, again, far less significant than you. That's a great study. There's a lot there that we needed to be reminded of regularly. But frankly, I'm not going to repeat that study this morning. Rather, I want to approach this a little bit differently by, by looking a little bit deeper at what is causing our anxiety in the first place. And what's causing our anxiety, the root of our anxiety, the the root of our not living as Christ calls us to, according to Jesus' words here, is misplaced seeking or desire. You look at verse 32. It's the Gentiles, the pagans, those who do not know or live for God that live their lives seeking, desiring the things of the world. But in contradistinction to that, Christ's disciples are told in verse 33 not to spend our lives desiring the things of the world like the pagans, but to seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness and to trust Him to take care of the material details. So it's what we're seeking that's at the root of our either living in anxiety or our living in faith, our our living for the things of this world or for Christ and the world to come. We can live seeking, desiring the wrong things, the provisions of life, the material. Or we can live to seek first, desire first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust God to provide what he knows we need. Now you probably noticed that I've been using the words seeking and desiring synonymously, and that's because they are synonymous in this text. The word translated seek in this text specifically means deliberate, striving, desiring, So the root of our anxiety over the things of the world is where our desires lie. That's why the main point of our Lord's teaching in this section is not just about anxiety as if he were saying, stop being anxious, just stop it. What's wrong with you? Don't you trust the Father? He's going deeper than that. And he's saying, if you're anxious, it's because you have misplaced desires. If your focus is only on the things of this world, you have misplaced desires. Your desires are out of whack. Correct those desires, and you will no longer be anxious. 
You won't be focused on the wrong things, but rather you will live trusting your Father to care for you, focus on what He calls you to. So that's what we're going to spend our time on this morning, and that's what leads to the promise of Christ that we find in this text too. The, the promise, the reward is hinged on what it is that we are seeking or desiring. And so the first point Christ makes about desire in our text is that we are to replace our desires, not eliminate them. We live in an interesting time in, in this country where pluralism is, is one of the dominating philosophies. In other words, all religions, all truth claims are equally valid in the marketplace of ideas. And because of that, we've adopted various philosophies from other religions that have become a part of our culture and even a part of our pop culture at times. Maybe sometimes we don't even recognize that, case in point. Star Wars. I'm, I'm a, a Gen Xer, one of the you know, original Star Wars generation. Because of that, I consider it my duty to ensure my kids are well-versed in Star Wars lore. And so that said, in addition to the movies, we've watched every episode of The Clone Wars and the Star Wars Rebels shows, which are officially part of the canon of Star Wars. And if you've seen those shows, the, the Jedi figure prominently into both of those series. And, and because of that, there's this Huge emphasis on the Jedi remaining detached. They're not to allow their desires to control them no matter what situation they're in. They must have no attachments. Of course, you find that in the movies too, but much more prominent in these shows. Well, where does that philosophy come from? It didn't originate in the mind of George Lucas. It's straight out of Buddhism. The way out of suffering and rebirth of this world and entering into nirvana according to Buddhism is found in the middle way. And central to the middle way is eliminating desire. It's desire that causes suffering. So if you can get rid of desire, then you get rid of suffering. Well, aside from the explicit gospel of Jesus Christ, of course, if there's a section of Scripture that, that shows all religions are not leading to the same path, that they're all not compatible in some way, this is it. Because Christ is not saying, eliminate your desire. Christ is saying, you're human. It's impossible not to have desires. After all, the desire to eliminate desire is itself a desire. It's impossible to do. The goal is not to get rid of desire, but to replace our desires, to change what it is that we are seeking after. And broadly speaking, Christ says there are two paths of desire that we can take. We can take the path of the pagan or the path of the disciple of Christ. And the path of the pagan is defined for us in verse 32 as eagerly seeking the material things of this world. According to the pagan path, the material is the focus of life, and it's up to you to get it or to get release from it, but that's what most other faith systems are about. You either believe in gods that you have to make happy so that they'll provide for you temporally, materially, or like we just talked about, you have to eliminate your desire in the first place, or maybe you don't believe in God at all, in which case the material really is all there is, and it's, there's no one to rely on but you to get everything you can out of this material universe before you die. But in every case, the focus is on the material either by attaining or by detaching. Conversely, the path of the disciple of Christ is not to pursue those things, but rather to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is to be the driving desire of our lives. And then we trust 
the Father to care for us materially. Now we're going to get into what it means in a few minutes to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But before I do that, I just I really, really want to emphasize the point that Christ is making here, that Christ is saying we don't just eliminate our desires, we replace them, moving from temporal pursuits being the, the main drive of our lives to the eternal, God's kingdom being the main drive of our lives. Just stop and think about what that explicitly means. What it means is, if our desires are motivated by material things, we're acting like pagans, period, end of story. And you might be sitting there thinking, no, not period, not end of story. Are you saying we're all supposed to live like Mother Teresa or, you know, live, move out to the desert and just forego anything and everything having to do with anything temporal or material? No, I'm not saying that it might mean that for some of us, but I'm not saying that's the answer for everybody. But anyway, if you're asking that question... You're still thinking like a pagan. And here's what I mean. This does not mean, to use the current vernacular, living the simple life or adopting minimalism. You know, you sell everything but a few versatile outfits. You buy a tiny house. You live as simply as possible. In a way, we, we kind of like that answer because at least it's tangible. That's a rule I can follow. Okay, I can wrap my mind around that. I can do that. No, that's, that's not the point. The whole point of this text is to think about what is the desire you're living for? And just having less stuff isn't the desire we're to have because ultimately we're still living like pagans because our focus is still on the stuff. It might be less stuff, but everything's still focused around the stuff. So, so please get that point. This doesn't mean material things are bad, that we can't enjoy the good gifts that God gives us. We absolutely can and we absolutely should. That's not the point. The point is, what is the driving desire of our lives? And Jesus says his disciples are to desire God's kingdom and righteousness first and then let God take care of the rest, whatever that means for our lives materially. That might mean a tiny house, might mean a nicer, bigger house, might mean a fairly abundant life materially, it might mean a more meager life materially. There's, there's no universal answer as to what your life might look like. It might look a little bit different for all of us because that's what God determines we need in our lives, and that's the point. You realign your desires so that you're no longer guided by the material. Your, your perspective is no longer just limited to the temporal like a pagan, but rather completely and totally guided by the desire to glorify, magnify, proclaim, live for God and his kingdom, trusting him to take care of the material details, whatever that looks like, whatever he deems is perfect for your life. That's not your problem. That's God's problem. Your job is to remain focused on God's kingdom and righteousness and living in dependent trust on him for everything else. If you just stop and think about that, I hope you realize how freeing that is. Again, as we approach this new year, we, this is the time of year we often kind of take stock of our, of our lives, which often can lead us to kind of ranking ourselves according to the world's values. Well, this frees us from that. It frees us from obsessing whether we're as successful in our career as we think we should be. If we never got our dream job, if our retirement doesn't quite look like we thought it would, our house isn't really as nice as we like it to be, 
Can't buy those things for our kids we really want them to have, and on and on. And it's not just that we, don't, we have no responsibility, responsibility in those things. We just you know, sit around and wait for God to magically drop money in our bank accounts. No, we, we work hard in our careers, whether it's our dream job or not. We work hard at managing our money well. We work hard to provide and care for and love for our family. We enjoy God's good gifts along the way. But those things are not our motivating desire. We don't seek those things so that we can just have a more comfortable material life here. Rather, we seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, and we enjoy and use whatever material resources that he graciously gives us to that end. And so if as a result he promotes you up the career ladder, then praise him. Enjoy that he did that. And then use that even more for his kingdom, not just for yourself. Or maybe he has you somewhere that isn't that awesome and you feel kind of stuck. Maybe he's directing you somewhere else. Or maybe he has you there for a reason. And so you use this, this moment, this position, this house, this neighborhood to focus completely on his kingdom because that's where he has you, which means it's the best place you could possibly be. Or maybe your career is over and you're in retirement. Awesome. That doesn't mean you're free to just... Play golf. I mean, play golf, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with playing golf. But far more, you're just freed to live even more for his kingdom. I have a special word here for the men. Obviously, it's important for everyone. This, this message is for everyone. Women can get caught up on, in similar things too. But just for the next moment, I just want to focus on, on the men because we, we have a tendency to just so often define our entire lives based on these things. I get hung up on this all the time. I'm sure some of you do too. I mean, you know how it is. You meet a new dude, and within 60 seconds, what's the question? You are pretty much guaranteed to be asked. So what do you do for a living? It's how we rank ourselves. It's how we identify ourselves. So if we're not really where we like to be, we kind of feel lesser than answering that question. Or if we're proud of where we are, we kind of like answering that question. Next time you define your life that way, think about what Jesus is saying that is. It's paganism. It's showing your life, your desires are motivated by the material, by worldly values. Again, I'm not saying we can't enjoy the things of the world that God has provided for us and our families. The point is, that should never define us. That shouldn't be our guiding desire, what we are after, what our identity is wrapped around, what we are putting our faith in. Who cares about building our little kingdoms of toothpicks that are going to be wiped away before we know when this mist of a life is over? Pagans do that. Christ's disciples are not to do that. We are to live categorically different lives. And it's not just that we refrain from the pursuit of material things, but we replace that as the ultimate desire with a new desire motivated by a different source, and that's God and his kingdom, even as we live in and enjoy the material things of this world. But our our ambition is no longer to advance our kingdoms, but God's kingdom and righteousness. That's the path of a disciple of Christ, and that's the path for all of us, I hope, in this new year. Did I just lose my mic? Everybody hear me still? Okay, good. Sounded like it dropped a little bit. So that's the driving desire of a disciple of Christ, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
which I said a few minutes ago, we would spend some time on defining that, if that's to be our driving desire, what exactly does that mean? What does that look like to desire God's kingdom and righteousness? So let's look at his righteousness first. Seeking first his righteousness means to pursue righteousness of life in full submission to the will of God. We're pursuing holiness and righteousness as we submit to the will of God. And what's the will of God for our lives? Well, Scripture answers that question all over the place. For example, the Bible says things like God's will for our lives is to serve God above all things and Jesus Christ whom he sent to live for his glory, whether we eat or drink, everything we do is to be for his glory. We're to be increasing in holiness and our sanctification. We're to be living for the good of others. We're to be making disciples. We're to be living in trust of him and many other things. So to seek first his kingdom means to live lives of righteousness by lovingly obeying God's word. Lovingly obeying God's will over our lives. Pretty straightforward. That's what it means to seek first his righteousness. Now let's look at what it means to seek first his kingdom, which is a a little more complex, but incredibly significant. And it's significant because there's some confusion for some about the nature of the kingdom and our role in it. So I want to take a few minutes to consider that. And we'll begin by looking at the nature of the kingdom, what the nature of the kingdom is. And the nature of the kingdom is best understood by understanding the kingdom, some of you have heard this phrase before, is already and not yet. It's already broken into the world, but it has not yet fully been realized. The not yet aspect of the kingdom is the eternal kingdom. You read about this in Revelation 20, 21, after the final judgments, the new heaven, the new earth is created where Christ will reign as those who are his will live with him, serve him, praise him, worship him in glorified bodies in a perfect place forever and ever. It's what a, a true child of God can't wait for. As Hebrews 11 says, this isn't our home. We're, we're aliens on this earth longing for our true home in the presence of the Lord where death is abolished and, and sin is no longer and, and wars and suffering and disease and tears and hurt and heartbreak are gone forever as we see our King face to face. That's the ultimate, eternal, everlasting fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Again, that's probably pretty straightforward. There's not a whole lot of confusion regarding that. Where the confusion lies for some is in the already aspect of the kingdom. So hopefully to eliminate any confusion about that, we need to understand first and foremost that the kingdom is centered on the King Christ. When we think about kingdom, we need to be thinking about the King Christ. And although that seems obvious, that is exactly where much of the confusion takes place. For example, I'm sure you've heard Christians talking about, you know, kingdom work or expanding the kingdom. And that's usually those terms are usually used in reference to the church being involved in community development and helping the homeless and uh, being involved in, you know, water wells and maybe environmental concerns. And and all those are, are great things to be involved in. But using language connected to those things misunderstands the nature of the kingdom. And I think part of this mistaken understanding is a result of how we think of kingdom. Because typically when we hear the word kingdom, we usually think 
in geographical terms, like a king ruling a land. But biblically, the kingdom of God doesn't refer to a piece of land. It refers to the rule or reign of Christ in our hearts, minds, and lives. So the kingdom of God is not expanded as homelessness is reduced geographically, as awesome as that would be. The kingdom of God is expanded when people bow their knees to the king. And that king is Jesus. Christ said in Mark 1.14, He came into Galilee preaching the, the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The statement of Christ made in the beginning of His ministry is absolutely vital in understanding the kingdom. Christ announced the kingdom the Jews had been waiting for was here. It was inaugurated with Him. In other words, the kingdom began with Christ's incarnation as we just celebrated a week ago on Monday. God's breaking into His creation in the person of Jesus Christ. That wasn't just the Creator visiting His creation. It was the launching point of God's promised solution to sin and death that entered the world when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. But this is where it gets even more amazing. It's not just that the King had come. Many Jews were expecting the Messiah to come. Nor is it just that this King came to establish a kingdom of good works. What's truly astonishing is that this king, the king of the universe, came to suffer and die to save his people who repent and believe in him. The king, God himself, came to die for the sins of his rebellious people and usher them into his eternal kingdom. And it's only when another sinner repents of their sin and bows their knee to the king, King Jesus, that is when the kingdom of God is expanded. It's not geography, it's hearts. So putting it together, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Well, it means we have had the desires of our hearts changed to live for King Jesus as we repent and no longer live lives in slavery to sin, but rather as slaves of righteousness and obedience to our King. And in that, we desire as many people as possible to participate in the saving reign of our King. And so we live to proclaim that truth. You can see how massively different that is from living like a pagan seeking the things of the world. So we've considered what our driving desire is to be. The kingdom of God and His righteousness. We define that. Now we get to the result of living this way, the, the promise, which is that our seeking God is rewarded. That's our promise, that, that our realigned seeking will be rewarded. And what's the reward? Verse 33, that all these things shall be added to you. Now what does that mean? Well, it's pretty straightforward, right? Do we even need to ask that question? The these things are all the stuff listed in verse 25, the provisions of life, the, the material stuff of life, right? But wait, that, that can't be right. We just finished talking about how verse 32 says that's the stuff the pagans are seeking after. Is Christ now contradicting Himself and, and preaching the prosperity gospel? Don't worry about all the stuff about life. Just seek first My kingdom and My righteousness and then I'll give you all that stuff. You're not going to miss out on it at all. It's just that it'll be a gift for me. Well, if, if that's the case, then our desires haven't changed at all. It's still 
about getting us, us getting what we want. It's just that instead of going out and getting it on our own, we treat God like Santa Claus, and as long as we're good, He'll bring all the material stuff we want. Although, sadly, far too many people believe some version of that. I hope it's clear by our study today that most decidedly is not what this text or any text in Scripture is saying. I hope no one here would buy into such teaching. Probably more realistically, though, this group, this church, probably reads this and thinks something along the lines of, you know, I may never be on MTV Cribs, you know, with a mansion overlooking the ocean, but at least I know I'm not going to go homeless and hungry. God's going to make sure He at least takes care of my creature comforts. That is surely what this text is saying, right? That's certainly how I understood this text for years, and I have to admit it, it gave me a, a fair bit of comfort. Well, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but that does not, that's not what this text is saying either. And if you think about it, that can't be what it's saying. After all, both Christ and Paul were homeless and hungry at times. Many, many Christians throughout history and still today are homeless and hungry. Are we more worthy than they? Did God somehow forget this promise for them? No, of course not. So that's not what this means. Here's how John Piper helps us understand what all these things means. He says, All these things does not mean everything we think we need, but everything we really need. And real needs are determined by what God calls us to do, not what we feel like doing. God gives us all these things that we need to fulfill His calling on our lives. God does not define what we need by our American middle-class expectations. He defines it by what He knows we need to live in complete dependence on Him and to fulfill whatever He calls us to for His glory, whether that means meagerness or abundance materially. So all these things is whatever God knows we need. But we began today by saying Christ is pointing us to something deeper beyond the material. That means the, the reward is not just that we get to trust God for the material, that we don't have to worry about it. He'll deal with it. He knows best. That is absolutely true. That is incredibly important. That's on the path to the reward. We have to get that. But like I said, Christ, he, He's even going deeper. He's even pointing us beyond that. The true reward is that we will have true, deep, soul-gratifying satisfaction beyond the material. And what is that satisfaction, this ultimate reward when we seek first God's kingdom and righteousness and trust God to provide all these things? What is that reward? The reward is God. God Himself is the reward. We receive so much more than a nice temporal, material lifestyle. We receive the only thing that can satisfy our deepest longing, our deepest desires, bring us the greatest joy, give us purpose and pleasure, the very reason we were created in the first place. We know God in Christ in a deep, abiding way. When we live like this, we will know Him more. We will love Him more. We will live in deeper fellowship with Him. We will trust Him more. We will love like Him more. We'll live 
like Him more. We get more of Him, the limitless One. That is our reward. God Himself, the only thing that satisfies. That's the promise. That's the reward. As someone who falls prey to the pagan desires of this world, I get to the end of a study like this and and frankly, I'm just kind of smacked in the face. Because I know this is exactly what I need to be reminded of as I approach this new year. And I think about all the things that I want, all the things that I want to accomplish. I'm smacked out of my obsession with and distraction by the temporal. And I think, like I said earlier, man, who cares about building my stupid little kingdom trying to get everything I can out of this life? You compare it to having more of Christ and it's just ridiculous. Who cares if I'm not as successful by worldly standards as I think I should be? If I'm not where I thought I'd be at this point in my life, if, if I don't have that car or that house or that position or that health or whatever. Or maybe you have all of that. But that's what you're living for. If you don't have it, you'll be rocked. That's what you're all about. You just convince yourself it's okay because you're doing it in the name of God. God gets the credit. If that's you... And I hope today you're reminded your kingdom will not last. It will be wiped away and you'll be in eternity. But most importantly, you're settling for, you're seeking for something that can't satisfy you in the way you were created to be satisfied. We're reminded this morning, whether we have much or little, that's not where our focus should be. We've been given a far superior desire and reward in life to know and trust God by living for His kingdom and His righteousness. Why would we ever trade that in for some silly trinket thing, position that we think we need? This is the most wonderful realigning promised of Christ. And so I, I admonish you, I, I encourage you as we approach this new year, don't get hung up with seeking the stuff of this world or lamenting that you don't have it. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and more than you could ever imagine, more than any silly trinket or sustenance of this life could ever provide will be added to you. A trusting dependence of God who you know intimately, who one day you will see face to face and enjoy the eternal rewards of His eternal kingdom, and we get to live in light of that right now. That is not pie in the sky. That is a guaranteed promise of Christ for you who seek Him first. Let's pray. My God, I, I praise You. I just pray that You would get all the glory in everything we do in our lives. I pray that every person here that we would have our desires truly aligned. As, as Adam prayed earlier, that we would live as if this is our last year. How differently we would think about things and focus on things and prioritize our days, God. So I just pray that we would live boldly for your kingdom, living and proclaiming your gospel and doing it full of the joy and grace that you've given us. We praise you, our almighty King, the King of the universe, Jesus Christ, in your holy name. Amen.